Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning, as I say every Sunday. Uh, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to, uh, to open up the scriptures with you this morning. I'm going to go ahead and warn you, if you were here last week, um, you will not receive the uh, number of uh, cult classic 80s references that you got last Sunday when James preached. Um, I'm not that culturally relevant. Um, uh, but I do have God's word for you this morning. Um, and, and we get an opportunity to open up uh, the book of Psalms yet again for uh, one last run. Uh, who knows, maybe we'll come back around in the future and go after the other 140 that we didn't get to in, in summer 2017. But this morning, uh, we get to dive into Psalm 118, um, the 10th the and final psalm that the author of Hebrews references in his writing. We've been going after the psalms that we find in the book of Hebrews as a stage setting for what's to come in the fall. We're going to dive into that book of the Bible together as a church uh, a few weeks from now, and we'll be able to come back and reference uh, this summer in the Psalms and kind of connect those dots, which should be really cool. If you've been around, I, I hope that you've been both encouraged and challenged by our time in this particular book of the Bible. I hope that you've come face to face with the, the beauty, the character, the nature, the being of God. I hope that you've come face to face with the fullness of the human condition and experience. It's really crazy to think that, that we could dive into just 10 of these Psalms and experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows of the human experience. I hope that, that this uh, series has put a song on your lips and song in your heart. Um, after all, as we've been talking about for weeks now, the book of Psalms is the hymn book of the Old Testament. It's a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace, which we see most surely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as I've been saying from the very start of this series, we sing psalms of praise to Jesus as our Savior and King. We sing psalms of lament to him as our high priest and advocate, our intercessor. We sing psalms of thanksgiving to him for who he is and what he's done for us. We sing psalms of, of uh, remembrance to him as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. We sing psalms of confidence to him because he's trustworthy. And we sing psalms of wisdom to him because he's wisdom personified and the very source of wisdom. The heart sings of, of that in which it delights. And so I, I hope that this series has increased your delight in God. Otherwise, what are we doing? All right? I hope that you've seen his goodness. I hope that you've seen his glory. I hope that you've come face to face with his grace. And I hope that you encounter all of that this morning as we take one last look at one last psalm before moving on to the next series. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 118. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the row in front of you underneath one of those chairs. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours. Free gift from the church. Take it, please. Let me, uh, let me just pray for us, and we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll jump in and get to work this morning. God, I pray this morning that you would give us fresh eyes to see words that many of us have seen before in the Scriptures, that many of us have sung before. Uh, even verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures for any, forever. Many of us have, have sung those words and, and failed to connect the dots to the reality that those words are, are intertwined with a deliverance from, from some of the darkest moments that man can experience. They're intertwined in this very psalm. They're not meant to be sung in a trivial way, in a, in a surface level way. 
They're meant to be sung as we acknowledge the God who makes a way where there is no way. The God who reaches down into the darkest of darknesses and shines light and gives us hope. God, would you help us to see you for who you truly are, for who you've revealed yourself to be in Psalm 118. And would you move and stir in our hearts in such a way that we would leave with a new song on our lips and that our very lives would carry those lyrics forth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, Psalm 118, it's a fascinating psalm if for no other reason than this psalm is one of, of a few that are believed to have uh, provided the backdrop for the hymn that Jesus and the disciples sang after the Passover meal in Matthew chapter 26. So you picture Jesus and the disciples in the upper room, the Last Supper, and, and following that meal, Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn together. And that hymn is made up of, of several of the psalms, Psalm 118 being one of those psalms. So it's kind of crazy to think that Jesus himself saying these words that we're looking at this morning. They rolled off of the lips of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, this is a psalm that was incorporated into the Passover celebration every year among God's people. The Israelites would sing this psalm as they remembered their rescue from Egypt during the time of the Exodus, during the time of Moses. And so the heart of this psalm really has to do with the power of God to deliver as he delivered his people from Egypt. And so it begins with these words, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This opening verse, I mean, it tells you what to do and why to do it, right? What to do? Give thanks. Why? Because God is good and his love endures. Sounds so simple, and yet one of the, the biggest questions for us as we engage Psalm 118 is this. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. Will we believe that tomorrow when everything comes unraveled or the next day or whenever that happens for you? Because it's that belief that will inform our God-glorifying gratitude. Verse one tells us he's worthy of thanks, he's worthy of praise, that his steadfast love does in fact endure forever. That word steadfast love, um, just to bring some clarity to that phrase, it, it actually refers to God's covenant faithfulness meaning that God keeps his promises to his people, that he's true to both his character and his word. If he says he'll do it, then he'll do it. He's trustworthy. And so as we work our way through this psalm, ask yourself, where do I see God's covenant faithfulness? Where do I see the promise-keeping faithfulness of God in my life? This is not just a declarative statement about who God is, verse 1. Verses two through four make plain that God's people are actually meant to offer up an emphatic amen to verse one. Verse two says, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever, amen. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever, amen. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever, amen. I mean, this is, this is all-encompassing language. This is everybody who makes up uh, the people of God, Israel, the priests, the God-fearers, no exceptions. Uh, this is meant to be an emphatic amen amongst God's collective people. And so if you're a Christian, these next few verses should resonate with you because they connect the dots to this declaration, his steadfast love endures forever. They actually make up the song of the church. Look at verse five. It says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. I mean, talk about, talk about a set of verses that we could use to preach the gospel to ourselves. My goodness. Right? Just circle them. Take a picture of them. Screenshot them. Put them up on your bathroom mirror. Put them you know, on the, the steering wheel of your car. These verses are, are quite amazing. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear them just about every day. At least some semblance of, of these words of God's answering and responding and delivering. I mean, here we see the psalmist remembering God's past tense works of deliverance in his own life, remembering what it was like to be set free. Let me ask you, do you remember what it was like to to come to Jesus and to be set free? I think we so easily forget. And and listen, I'm not even sure that I know the specific moment when I, I came to be a Christian. All right, I'm one of those guys, like many of you who grew up in the Bible Belt, who prayed a sinner's prayer about 18 times throughout the course of my adolescence because I went to a summer camp, and then I committed a sin afterwards, and I was sure that God couldn't love me, and so then I did, did it all over again at the next summer camp. And so it, it's a fuzzy, muddy story that, that I have to offer, um, but I do know what it's like to experience the guilt of sin removed from my life in the bigger picture. I do know what it's like to have the weight of shame lifted because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Do you remember? It's a beautiful exercise to stop and remember the work of God in setting us free. And not just when we, we came to know Jesus uh, in terms of our, our new birth, our, our uh, coming into the family of God, but those works of, of deliverance that he does in our lives ongoing. It gives us boldness and trust. Look at, look at what the psalmist says. I will not fear man because God is on my side. God is my helper. What's the worst man can do to me? Kill me? Then I shall see him face to face. That's crazy. I, I, don't, I don't know about you. I don't think that way. I don't talk that way often. I don't have that kind of courage, that kind of boldness and confidence in the Lord. The song of so many martyrs throughout the history of the church. Now, certainly these words make up the personal testimony of of the psalmist, but lest we be inclined as a result to determine that they're meant for his lips alone. This psalm was a liturgical psalm. It was originally composed for a special occasion. Some think that it was the, uh, the rebuilding of the temple after the exile in Jerusalem. Others believe it was for the dedication of the temple as God's people came together to celebrate the, the rebuilding. But either way, the ice statements in this psalm Every time you see the word I, they would have been declared by each and every member of the congregation making up God's people. And so you could say this, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Lord has answered you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Lord has set you free. If you're a follower of Jesus, (laughs) this is a big one for me, the Lord is on your side. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Lord is your helper. That's amazing. Verses five through seven, they're the song of the church. They're our song to sing. As are the wisdom verses that follow. Verses eight and nine says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All right, let me be honest with you guys. These verses leveled me this week as I sat with the following sentence that was drawn out of verses eight and nine. Namely, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in blank. I don't know about you, but there there is no short list of things in my life that I could fill that blank with. 
things that I put my trust in apart from God. My heart needs to hear things like, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in money. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man's words of approval. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in myself. How would you finish that sentence? I mean, for every one of us, verses 8 and 9 present us with an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity to, to turn from those things that we're putting our trust in apart from the trustworthy God of Psalm 118. And they also, these verses, present us with some glorious material, again, for preaching the gospel to ourselves, particularly in moments when we find our hearts veering away from trusting in the God of Psalm 118. Specifically, when you look at verses 8 and 9, these verses deal with the issue of trusting in man. That thing in the human heart that, that causes us to become dependent on the praises and compliments of other people. That thing in the human heart that causes us to become devastated when others criticize us. That thing in the human heart that causes us to, to put our hope in other people rather than God. I mean, how many Facebook likes is, is enough, really? How many retweets does it take to truly validate a person? Every time we think like that, we've forgotten the gospel. God delights, hear me this morning, God delights over you because of Jesus Christ. He delights over you because of Jesus Christ. You are God's beloved child because of Jesus Christ. A beloved son of the Father, a beloved daughter of the Father because of Jesus there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you because of Jesus Christ. There's refuge in the Lord, verses 8 and 9 tell us. There's refuge in the gospel. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 10, All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Here you see the darkness of the human condition. The psalmist remembering a specific time when God rescued him. And it's a time when it seemed as if there was no way out. Look at the language. The use of the word surrounded four times in three verses. His enemies surrounding him like a swarm of bees. He was pushed hard so that he was falling. I love verse 13. But the Lord. That's the gospel. But the Lord. The God of Christianity is a God capable of rescue when it appears that there is absolutely no way out. I mean, isn't that how the gospel works? It's when we acknowledge that we have nothing more to bring to the table than our sin and the empty hands of faith that, that God rescues. That's all we bring to the table. We, we can't claw our way into God's good graces. The, the Bible teaches us that there is no such thing as good enough as it pertains to coming into the presence of a holy and perfect God. We need a righteousness that's not our own. That's the beauty of, of the gospel that Jesus entered in. He stooped down into the slums of human history to live the life that you and I could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die as, as our substitute, as our sin bearer. To, to rise from the grave, conquering our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. The gospel declares a God who rescues in the midst of the reality that apart from him there is no way out. And yet he has made a way. Why in the world do we, as a culture, 
claw after this need for multiple ways to heaven. It's beautiful that we've been given one. (laughs) This kind of God is worthy of our praise. The psalmist goes on to say, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. These verses are, are really fascinating. They connect back to the Exodus story, God's people in the time of Moses. Verse 14 is actually a direct quotation from the victory song of God's people at the Red Sea in Exodus 15. And also part of that same victory song are are these words, the right hand of the Lord. You see that over and over again in Exodus chapter 15. Again, the heart of this psalm has to do with the power of God to deliver as he delivered his people from Egypt. He never changes. I mean, one of the things I thought about as I read this is, uh, who of us is like him? Like, who in this room has ever parted a body of water like the Red Sea? Are you kidding me? If you've done that, we're grabbing coffee this week, you and me, because I want to hear that story. That's nuts. God does that, only the Lord. He is our salvation. He is our strength. He is our song. Now, here's the deal. For most of us, that salvation piece makes a lot of sense. We talk in that lingo as the church, right? We've been saved from Satan, sin, and death. We've been saved to God himself. Jesus has done that. He's our savior. He has saved us. He is our salvation. But what about the other descriptors of God in verse 14? Is God your strength? Is it God who holds you up when you're weak? Is it God to whom you turn when everything comes unraveled in your life? Is God your song? Is it God who comprises the lyrics that flow forth from, from your lips? And not just your lips, but if your life were a song, what, what, what would the lyrics be that make up that song? Would it sing of the goodness, the glory, and the grace of God? See, here, here's the reality. Um, Psalm 118 is filled with hard but good news. And verse 18 points us to some of that hard but good news. Namely, that God loves us way too much to leave us as we are. Verse 18 sheds some light on why the psalmist has experienced some of the trials that he's gone through. Namely, the Lord has disciplined me severely. It's the fatherly discipline of the Lord. The the word discipline here means instruction with teeth. Instruction with teeth. We're, We're talking about a difficult experience meant to shape, meant to grow a person. That God doesn't love us enough to simply convert us. He loves us so much that like a good father, he will not allow us to be crushed by our complacency. That sometimes it takes sorrow to pry our grip off of lesser things that cannot ultimately satisfy us, to help us know a little something more of the hope in God that doesn't disappoint, to give us eyes to see that God is not only our salvation, but our strength and our song, as Psalm 118 declares. This psalm, in the closing verses, it's really amazing. It moves Uh, from this kind of individual declaration to this procession of God's people moving toward the temple in collective singing. It's a picture of the church. Verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. 
It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That in response to his rescue, there's this entering of the Lord's gates with thanksgiving. There's this entering of his courts with praise. These verses help to make sense of why many believe that the backdrop of this particular psalm was, was the rebuilding or dedication of the temple after the exile because you have this language of, of stones and cornerstones. And so perhaps the rejection piece has to do with those who oppose the rebuilding of the temple. You can read about part of that story in the book of Nehemiah. But many scholars believe that there's even a personal element, that, that on an individual level, the psalmist is the stone, rejected by his enemies, yet triumphant because of the mighty hand of God. And that on a corporate level, Israel is the stone. Other nations thought little of her, but God chose her to be the, the cornerstone of his redemptive plan. And yet, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that these verses point to something much bigger. These verses find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, that he's the righteous one who entered through the gate of the Lord. He offers us his perfect righteous record so that we can enter into the presence of God. He's the stone that the builders rejected, yet he has become the cornerstone of the church. Jesus uses these, these very verses himself in the parable of the wicked tenants in the gospel accounts to show how the religious leaders of Israel had rejected him. Peter Peter uses these verses after healing a lame beggar in Acts chapter 3 and being arrested. He's talking to the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court on religious matters, you might say. And, and he, he offers these words, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, he's the stone. Here it is, Psalm 118. He's the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's amazing how the Bible is weaved together like this glorious literary masterpiece. Peter takes the language of Psalm 118 and shows how it, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, scorned by the ones he came to, to save. We sing it all the time around here. I don't know about you, but it, it's, it's kind of amazing to me. It still amazes me that the scribes, the Pharisees, Israel herself could participate in the, the rejection of her own cornerstone just goes to show that you can be a part of the visible gathering of God's people and miss it. Happens all the time in the South. I think verse 25 is the perfect verse to make sense of how that could happen. Look at these next couple verses. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That, that it's God who saves. We can't, we can't earn his favor again. We can't impress him with our religious pedigree or resume. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. We bring nothing to the table but our sin in the empty hands of faith, declaring, save us, we pray, O Lord. If you're not a Christian, my hope is that verse 25, very simply, would become the cry of your heart this morning. That very verse, it's really amazing. That very phrase 
Save us, we pray, O Lord. When you, when you transliterate that, that's a big word, when you transliterate that from Hebrew to Greek, that phrase, save us, we pray, O Lord, becomes Hosanna, which is quite amazing when you put it together with the very next verse, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those very words, those very same words were declared by the crowds when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Look at this, up on the screen. Matthew 21 Verses six through nine says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he, Jesus, sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, here it is, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Psalm 118 has Jesus written all over it. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our strength. He is our song. Every other cornerstone upon which we build our lives, it'll crumble eventually, but not Jesus. I can't tell you how often I need to preach that to myself. In these final few verses, I love these verses. We see the appropriate response to this beautiful display of God's steadfast love toward us. Verse 27 says, The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. We could just stop there and just bask in the reality that he's shown light into the darkness of our hearts, our lives, our stories, and just rejoice over that. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The the celebration for the psalmist and God's people is about to begin. A joyful dance around the altar in response to God's steadfast love and deliverance. This sacrifice of praise, this, this declaration of gratitude. As I've said in other weeks of this series, a throwdown that just might make pagans look prudish. A willingness to risk embarrassment to declare just how great God really is. Which brings up the million dollar question for us. If the appropriate response for Israel was to give thanks to the Lord for his mighty power to save, how much more should we as the church give thanks to the Lord for the salvation that's ours in Jesus? I mean, Jesus did a far greater work than delivering Israel from from Egypt, right? Can we agree to that? A far greater deliverance has happened in Jesus Christ, that he came not to deliver us from Egyptian enslavement, but from the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, that he's worthy of the greatest throwdown the world's ever known. He's worthy of our embarrassing ourselves to declare just how great he really is, and not just in this place when we gather, but as we leave with a song on our lips, a song that we sing with our lives. May the Spirit of God wipe the sleep away from our eyes, mine included, to help us to see and savor his steadfast love in the face of Jesus Christ. May he remove our inhibitions and fill our mouths and hearts with a song. Each week of this series, we've taken the time to sit with the question, how does this psalm point to Jesus? I don't think we need to do that this week. I think our unpacking of verses 22 through 26 make that crystal clear. But I I would like to attempt to answer the other question that we've been seeking to answer each week. Namely, what is our song to sing as the church? If it's true that the heart sings of that in which it delights, what are we meant to delight in as we consider Psalm 118? 
And again, I, man, I think you could, you could write an album with Psalm 118. So I'm just going to offer you a couple of lyrics that I see, and you can just add to it as you spend time in this psalm on your own. But here we go, just a couple. Number one, he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. It, it's, it's etched all over the psalm, these words, right? Uh, they're meant to make up the lyrics of the redeemed. That's you and me. That, that he's true to both his character and his word. That he keeps his promises to his people. I don't know about you, but I've broken a thousand promises in my life at least. Not God. He's a promise keeper. He's true to his word. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our gratitude. All of his promises find their yes in Jesus. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made in a garden so very long ago. The hero, the rescuer. Again, he came to live the life we could never live, a perfect sinless life. He came to die the death that we deserve to die. He came to, to rise from the grave, conquering our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. The greatest rescue mission that the world has ever known has happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The mightiest display in all of human history of God's power to save. It's in Jesus that we fully experience the steadfast love of God. And it's a love that we're told will endure forever and ever and ever and ever. It's a song that we'll never stop singing. The second lyric is this. He is our salvation, our strength, and our song. That true hope, true rescue is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no other cornerstone, the Bible says. Everything else we build our lives on is sinking sand. That in Christ, like the psalmist, we've been answered. In Christ, we've been set free. And not only is he our salvation, again, he's our strength. He's strong enough to hold us up when we're weak. If you're holding on by a thread this morning, if, if you're wondering if you're going to make it through tomorrow, know that he's not just your salvation, he's your strength. He is strong enough to hold you up. And he's, he's our song. He's our song. The heart sings of that in which it delights. That if we will delight ourselves in Christ, our lives will become more and more a song of praise. And so again, as I've asked every week, are these lyrics part of the song of your heart? Because we, we do as the church, we have a song to sing, both with our lips as we move into a time of reflection in just a few minutes and a time of singing, but also with our lives as we leave this place. Do we really believe that he's good? Do we truly believe that his steadfast love endures forever? Do we really believe that he's worthy of the greatest throwdown the world has ever known? Do we really believe that he's worthy of embarrassing ourselves to declare just how great he really is?